Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network from nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous san fernando valley i'm mick garris and we are back with another fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is our good pal, producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I am doing well, Mick. I actually have a, a movie starting this week. I I know that, and I'm very <laughs> proud of you, young man. Uh, another you, another man. script going before the cameras, rolling right now. You've been knocking them out. This is what you're third one this year or second this is my this is well this is my second that i've written in my third movie this year which is pretty pretty amazing uh that's great yeah that's yeah now, i'm just i'm just setting myself up for a disappointing 2022 uh <laughs> <laughs> let's hope not i mean no. your 2021 will cover no matter what happens in 2022 Yes, yes, yeah. No, financially, I don't have to worry. It's, uh, but it would be nice to be able to, you know, continue to to capitalize on the momentum. But you know, that's that's up to the movie gods, and as you know, they're they're fickle gods indeed. They are indeed. Well, shall we dive into some questions? Yes. Um. So the first one, you know, is is we're gonna get a little, uh, you know, serious here for a minute. But I I think it's good that we talk about and address it and. Uh, you know, because it's kind of dominated not only Hollywood conversations, but the, the mainstream news for the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah. So TDE Pero asks, with recent events leading to a discussion about safety on set, what are your thoughts about what happened in New Mexico and what changes can be made? Well, it's absolutely horrifying. There's no way in hell that should ever have happened. For those who don't know the details, although uh, there are very few of you out there, um, there was a prop gun that was loaded with a live ammo and actor Alec Baldwin was rehearsing and shot the director of photography. The bullet went through and also hit the director of the film. There's no way this should ever, ever happen. Mm -hmm. Before there is ever any gunfire, in, on a movie set, the armorer or the prop man who usually is also licensed for guns um, takes out the gun, shows you it's empty, 
spins the, the cylinder, uh, makes it very evident there's nothing here, or if it's a prop gun that the, the barrel is blocked and it, there's no way any good prop master would allow anything like this to happen. There's a safety meeting before every, every day's shoot uh, in general, but specifically for scenes with gunfire, there are safety meetings where the first AD and the prop master and the armorer are all there and go through every one of the motions to make sure it's not humanly possible that anyone could be hurt by this. And for years, it's proven to be safe. This was apparently an inexperienced prop master. Apparently they were using guns. Uh, some of the crew members were shooting uh, targets with live ammunition from the prop guns, which is absolutely unheard of. It's, it's horrific and disgusting and should never have happened and should never happen again. And the people responsible for it happening, and I'm talking about the people who were responsible for making sure the gun was safe, should be in jail. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. There are fail safes after fail safes after fail safes that were ignored in this production. And that's why this happens so infrequently and why when it does, it's very tragic and, and oh, big news because it, it, you know, it's, I liken it to a, a plane crash, you know, flying is still the safest form of travel, but every once in a while, you know, yeah. uh, a plane crashes and it's horrible. And it's tragic. And, you know, if you think about how many rounds of ammunition have been fired on, uh, you know, blanks that have been fired on movie sets and without, without incident, it's because we have these fail safes in place. Um, but, and, you know, obviously. And it all came out of a lot of these rules came out of the Brandon Lee uh, shooting on the crow. Absolutely. Which, was, which to my recollection is probably the last major time something like this happened. Um, yeah, and that's 28 years ago. Right. That's, and that's, that's exactly my point. So there are, it is, it is, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are safety precautions and there are safety fail safes on set. You know, can they be better, I guess is, is a question, but I think it's, it's a broader question to, you know, can shoot schedules be longer so that people can take their time more when it comes to, you know, stunts and, and, things that might present some level of danger. And as uh, we're recording this, it's going to a vote for uh, through the uh, IATSE unions, the, the craft unions that do the filmmaking that would ensure shorter hours, longer breaks, uh, turnaround times that don't have you uh, going home in the middle of the night and coming back at dawn. Um, you know, it's it's just insane. Now, a lot of the fixes, people are talking about never having gunfire, even with blanks, doing everything digitally. Yeah. And if that's the best answer, it should be there. Now, you don't get the kick from a gun when you have a digital gunfire, and right. you don't get the, the sound that everyone reacts to right. that is organic to the scenes. But if it means a safer set, I'm all for it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, on our Netflix movie, um, Alejandro, uh, we he didn't use live ammunitions for the guns, but I think that had more to do with the locations not wanting us firing guns in these old elaborate houses uh, than yeah, good uh, you idea. Know, than, than than you know because obviously this was several months prior to this incident. But 
um, the locksmith, uh, the, the movie that I have starting this week, um, they are going to use rubber guns and visual effects. Uh, they're shooting in New Mexico. So I think it's even more particularly sensitive that they adhere yeah. to this. Um, but it will be interesting to see if that becomes the norm. I know the rock has pledged moving forward that he's going to do that in his movies. So that, I mean, really could set an industry precedent that could change things. Um, yeah. you know, so we'll have to see, but I mean, you know, I think you're right. The, the bigger, thing is this vote that's happening right now uh you know an IATSE showing that they're willing to go on strike hopefully over the next couple of years will allow them to continue to improve working conditions and sets will get safer all around and not just in terms of you know whether we're using blanks or whether we're using rubber guns yeah and i've worked on sets where it's a 16 hour shoot mm-hmm. and people get tired and if you're on location often your lodging is not where you're shooting. It's 20 miles away or, you yeah. know, and, and, and at four in the morning when you're driving home uh, and you, you're completely sleep deprived and exhausted from the, the hard work of making a movie, uh, it's amazing that there have not been more accidents, but there've been way too many and that needs to stop. And, not saying we should go to eight hour days, the, the French hours where uh, you do a walking lunch and you just work from, uh, for an eight hour day, but there is a compromise in there somewhere. But it seems like our industry is the only one that allows, legally allows these kinds of insane onerous hours. Which is pretty wild for such an industry that prides itself on being so liberal and forward thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It goes but, to show you there's a big disconnect between, uh, you know, the, the artists and the money. Uh, and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Spe- speaking of artists, I'm actually going to throw you a curveball and throw, throw a question in myself. Uh, you know, we were talking about IATSE voting this weekend, but uh, the WGA is actually voting this weekend uh, on, on a new proposal. I'm curious to get your take on it because you obviously have been a screenwriter of countless movies and a screenwriter who has been, uh, you know, it, it, like I have now rewritten by other writers. Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious what your take is on this new proposal about the additional literary material by credit. Yeah, it would be in the end credits, additional literary material by all of the, uh, every writer who was paid to work on a screenplay for a film. I'm fortunate in that most of the feature films that have been made from the scripts that I've written, I've been credited for the screenplay on. Uh, There have been a couple uh, and a couple of some size that I worked on that I did not get credit for. Um, But it would be awfully nice to have that acknowledgement that I was one of the people who applied my craft to this motion picture that contributed something that may have ended up in the film but was not the 50 or 60% required by the WGA to give you credit in the upfront uh, titles of the movie. So I, I think it's a great thing. I'm not so sure what the financial uh, elements uh, are. There, there isn't a financial element. Yeah, it's only uh, getting- it's literally a, only acknowledgements. You, you, yeah. You'll still get your, if you get written by or story by or what have you, uh, if you're awarded that credit, you'll still get whatever- residuals uh, residuals and such that you're entitled to it's literally just to like like acknowledging all of our craft service people who work on a movie um you know it's acknowledging all the writers who you know may have gotten 
you know, their, their history on the project erased because of an arbitration or such. Right. Um, which happens all the time, which happens uh, all the time. I mean, even on this, this new one, the locksmith right now, I was the third writer of now four writers on the project. Um, you know, and being the third writer in that line is not necessarily great for an arbitration. Right. Uh, even if my draft was the one that got us our cast and financing, you know, the first writer and the most recent writer stand the best chance of getting credit. Well, so for example, the- you know, uh, on Hocus Pocus, I was yeah. fortunate to be the first writer on that. I wrote four or five drafts. There were 11 other writers on it after me. And the only other writer was Neil Cuthbert, who was brought in to do a comedy polish for it, which he did a great job on. But the other 10 writers who worked on it are not acknowledged in any way. And I, I, I think they deserve to be uh, put into those credits. Yeah. So as of this recording, both of these proposals with IATSE and with the WGA are, are uh, up, up for a vote. And by the time this airs, uh, our conversation will be, have been in the past, but hoping, in my mind, hoping for ratification on, on both of those. On things. both parts. Absolutely. So, all right. Enough, uh, <laughs> enough union talk. Uh, let's get into <laughs> yeah. some, some fun questions. Uh, Chelsea asks, which story by Stephen King could you see working as a musical? You know, um, none of them. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> you know, they tried to do Carrie as a musical on Broadway, and it was a disaster. Um, uh, worst reviews, no business. Uh, wow. You know, uh, a musical should be what it's intended to be from the beginning. And in that regard, um, John Cougar and Stephen King did a musical together, wrote a musical together called Ghost Brothers of Darkland County that I went and saw in Atlanta. They were prepping it with the hopes of it going to Broadway. And it was great, but it was conceived as a musical. That It right. was conceived that there would be songs that propel the story along. And it was really impressive and really great. But I can't see Jerusalem's lot with a uh, singing and dancing cast. Well, I'll I'll pose this to you. Uh, A a good musical has to have a character with a strong want, right? Because there's always that I want song at the beginning of the movie that kind of sets up the whole story, right? I mean, what about about Misery the Musical? (laughs) (laughs) Has it been tried? I don't know. There's something. I don't know. I'm sure there's been a stage play of it, but but I I don't know. That's one I could see maybe. Well, you know, as a guy who's not really uh, much of a a musicals aficionado, I would be hard pressed to come up with a Stephen King story that would resonate. I've never been a fan of musical numbers interrupting the narrative. Uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's always been my, my rub with them, but unless uh, it's made that way, you know, if it's West side story or the music sure, Man or, or sure. ghost brothers yeah. of Darkland County, you know, oh, there are, there are great musicals, but yeah, no, yeah. I, the, the form, the form is an interesting one and it is very different. And I don't necessarily know that Stephen King's uh, works lend, lend themselves to it, but a good question. And also yeah. a different Stephen King question. And that's, and that's why I asked. It's one of the rare ones. Yeah. Yes. All right. Rick asks, I'm curious, what was the first indicator to you that Critters 2 had fans and the life past its original release, graduating to cult classic? Well, it took a long time. Um, You know, it it was at least 15 years after before 
suddenly I was getting invited to film festivals where they were going to run it at Easter. Uh, and I would see TV stations would run it at Easter time. And suddenly this movie, which was a disaster, well, it would be a disaster if it were more expensive, but this movie uh, that came out, came and went immediately, um, suddenly people started to catch up with it and discover it and, and discover that it was hopefully a little bit more than what you'd expect for a low budget sequel to a ripoff of Gremlins. Uh, but it was probably around those times. And then I think uh, TNT started to air it um, at Christmas time or, or at Easter time, sorry. And I would start hearing from people online about their appreciation for it. And now I don't know that it's achieved cult classic status entirely. Oh, yes, yes, it absolutely is. <laughs> well, it, it's certainly more popular than it's ever been. It's gotten more attention than ever. And and when people talk about the Critters movies, that's the one they seem to talk about the most. And When, when somebody makes a cake out of your movie, yeah. you've you reached cult classic status. <laughs> that's, that's true. And it was a beautiful cake. But, it was beautiful. You know, we had a lot of fun with it. We, put, we tried to put more into it than you would expect from this kind of sequel. And that whole Norman Rockwell goes to hell theme, which is a favorite of mine. There's humor in it. There's kind of, uh, you know, the inspiration of Gremlins and that sense of humor and that Warner Brothers cartoon sense of humor influenced us a lot as well but there's also some really wonderful actors in it and committed performances that that respect it more than than you might anticipate and hopefully those are the elements that made it connect with an audience that that continues to catch up with it and and you know it's it's another one of the things that I've done that uh, did not do well at the time of its premiere but has uh grown an audience over the years and sometimes those are the even more rewarding ones that's for sure the berg asks mick and i'm going to paraphrase this a bit you you've been around a bit four decades <laughs> is that four, the paraphrase four, four, de- four decades in the in the industry what has been your favorite decade to make films in and why you know it's, it's the same as whatever is my favorite project. It's what I'm doing at the time. And every decade, you know, is different, but you don't realize it when you're in the middle of it. It is what your life is at the moment. So it would be hard for me to choose a favorite decade. I started working as a writer, a paid screenwriter, and then as a director in, in the 80s. So that was an exciting time because my first time as a paid screenwriter was on Amazing Stories, working with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and Bob Zemeckis and Joe Dante, getting that opportunity and the opportunity to direct uh, on that show. That was thrilling. Doing my first feature, Critters 2, which we just talked about, that was in 88. Um, that was an exciting time. But in the 90s was when I started my, my relationship with Stephen King. And that started in 92 and doing these giant miniseries. The, the highest viewership of anything I ever made took place in the 90s. In the 2000s, 
was starting to do, uh, you know, more television that I wasn't necessarily the creator of. You know, we still did some more Stephen King projects in the uh, in the two thousands with Desperation and Bag of Bones, but I also had some experience with other people's episodic series. And well, that was also the decade of Masters of Horror. Uh, and Masters of Horror, which I was getting to, was, you know, the one thing that was most creatively gratifying of all, because it wasn't just me getting creative control, but me being able to grant creative control to all of these great directors who'd had less than happy experiences of giving up that control. So uh, I... Every one of those decades is just as important. And, and once again, most recently with, with Nightmare Cinema, be able to create something where the keys are given to the keys to the asylum are given to the inmates, where we're in control of our own destiny creatively is something really exciting. And that's something I didn't have in the early days and that, uh, that in the 2000s, I really was able to get. There you have it. So every decade has, has had its highs, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. Mike asks, what is your favorite part of the filmmaking process? Development, uh, writing, working with actors, shooting. What do you think? You know, Mike? It, it takes a very different personality to, to be a screenwriter than it does to be a director because screenwriting is very lonely. Uh, you're working by yourself. I love that because I'm, I'm not lonely. I'm surrounded by the characters, all of whom are a part of me. Um, I love the writing process, um, but it is a writing, uh, a very singular onanistic act uh, as a screenwriter. But the social aspects of gathering together really talented people, being surrounded by artists and technicians and actors, I love that process too. And it may be the most exciting. The shoot may be the most exciting because it's actually happening. The train is running down the hill and there are no brakes on. And it's, it's going to come out. You know it's going to be made. When you're writing or conceiving of a project, there's no guarantee it's going to be made. And in fact, the likelihood is tremendous that it's not going to be made. But to be actually in the middle of production, surrounded by this flurry of creativity and, and people who you admire and respect and actors you get to interact with, fulfilling the telling of your story is great. And then the post-production process, sitting with a composer and spotting the score and showing up, when whether there's a full orchestra or a brilliant composer with just doing samples that sound like an orchestra, that's another incredibly fulfilling time. Uh, and then the actual release can be the most exciting time of all, or it can be the point that drives you to suicide. <laughs> you know, going to opening day at the movie theater for Critters 2 and seeing two other people in the theater was like, okay, I guess I'm done. Um, but Every, every one of those elements is thrilling and exciting and exhilarating. But if I had to choose, and I guess this question means I do, the actual production is probably the most exciting and potentially fulfilling part. I agree. I mean, 
production is 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 so much fun and there's so many challenges and there's so many rewards and there's so many people you get to interact with i mean that's i feel like that's the drug that keeps you going that keeps you <laughs> keeps, keeps you going through all the the highs and lows and because you're chasing that experience again and again uh but i would also say sitting with an editor uh and watching the movie to come together in your director's cut um yeah that's that's one of my favorite moments too because you, you get to see all the fruits of your labor and all the fruits of all these these talented actors and crew members all everything come together for the first time and you get to find the movie and you get to make like and all these little changes can impact it in so many meaningful ways and i, I don't know there's something really special about that because you really no, get to, I, I i i think that's a great reflect. point I think that's a great point. When I started out, it was my least favorite time because this panoply of choices where there are thousands of choices to be made for every single scene. You know, how, when do you go to close up? What's the most effective way to build tension? All of these things. And it took working with some, some editors that I grew to trust and love and work with often that made me realize the the editing process is fantastic and to be able to shape and sculpt your movie in ways the details that that improve the movie uh that uh, avail themselves to you are are really thrilling and i love the editing process now and when you write you co-write so you have a writing partner yeah um for me uh, when I write by myself, it's really great being on my own because I enjoy being in my own head. And I also don't have to have arguments <laughs> with a writing partner. <laughs> I've had writing partners before and I love it, but they are inevitable and someone's going to capitulate one way or the other, one side of the team or the other. And I really like that part of, that's where I have total control is when I'm writing a screenplay. I don't have anybody I... I interface with and and I enjoy that process a lot. Yeah. yeah set, I, I think I feel up. like how you feel about editing and having so many choices. That is why I like having a writing partner because we can through, you know, blue skying an idea and drilling down into an outline and such, we can, we can narrow those choices. And that's, that's when I find I can kind of sharpen the, the story in, in the writing. Um, otherwise I tend to, you know, dream all day and, and get, you know, feel the weight of all of those choices, you know? So, yeah. so uh, I, I, I think there's, look, it's, and everyone's different and everyone's going to have a different process. And, and, uh, yeah. and that's why it's a good, it's a great question. Uh, so, all right, next up, Brett asks, is there a film out there that you wish you would have directed? You ever seen no. a movie that you were like, man, I wish I had directed that movie. Ah, there have been a few, but the one that stands out most is Gerald's Game. Mm, you know, sure, sure. Flanagan did a brilliant job of it. I, I love the movie that he made. But as soon as I had read the book, I wanted to direct it. Uh, and I knew it was seen as an impossible movie to direct, but I had ways I would have solved those problems the way that Flanagan did, but in, in other directions. Um, it's a very faithful adaptation and mine would have been as well. For a period of time, Stephen King himself wanted to direct Gerald's Game with me producing it. Interesting. So that almost happened, 
but it took several years more for it to get off the ground. But that was something I thought I can really do something special with this movie. It all takes place. 90% of it's in this one location, maybe even 95. And that location is a bedroom with a woman shackled to a bed naked, which obviously you couldn't get away with, but, but the horror story, you know, the, the psyche is laid so bare as well as the body. And in, in a way that is so incredibly tense and suspenseful and psychologically deep. And oh, I, I agree. I agree. I, I don't know if I ever that. told you this when I was a development executive, uh, like, like this is probably 2011, 12 ish. Um, my friend JP Scott, who I know you've met in the past, he did everything's yeah. eventual. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to do Gerald's game and we made a real push to try to get the rights. Wow. Um, so, so yes, Gerald, Gerald's game is one that, uh, uh, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who who were envious that Mike pulled it off and, and pulled and pulled it off so well, you know, really well. If anybody got the rights to it other than me, I'm glad it was Mike. I I agree. Uh, <laughs> so maybe maybe JP wouldn't agree, but I, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Mike asks, is it easier to direct a movie when you're also the writer of the script? Or does having more control bring its own set of challenges? I, I would say the former, uh, because if you're adapting, say, Stephen King, which I've done a lot, you feel beholden to the material. You know, he's a guy who appreciates input to, to make things better or to give it a, a specific vision or the like. But if I'm writing something original, if it's based on my own material or if it's an original screenplay, I'm not beholden to anybody except myself and the audience to tell the best story possible. So, uh, you know, not necessarily better, but easier. Yeah, it's easier to adapt my own material. I, I mean, I think, though, I would also throw out just this potential curveball when it is your own material. And I don't know if this is how you feel at all, but do you find that you maybe are a little bit more sensitive about making cuts to it or changes to it or, or along the way, or do you feel like, do you feel there's um, more objectivity when you're directing someone else's work as opposed to maybe a subjectivity with your own? Uh, just, just, just the opposite. I feel ruthless with my own material. I can make changes without uh, anybody else who might be involved or attached, whether it's an author or an, another screenwriter uh, or uh, actors. I can make changes and feel confident about it because I know who the characters are. I know what the story is. And I can be ruthless and say, you know, this would be better than what I originally came up with. And, uh, you know, it, it's very freeing. I don't have an ego that, that makes me say, oh, my words are golden. If an actor, <laughs> you know, well, we, might, had... we, we might, we might revisit this topic very shortly with another question, but, but okay. Let's, but let's, when let's an look... actor, I, I just as an example, yeah, though, yeah. Uh, when I was doing the stand, an actor came to the set with a sheaf of pages saying, here's my rewrite for this scene. Now mm. I could have a different conversation with that actor if it were my own material, than when it's an adaptation 
of a particular writer's most successful book ever. So it was an uncomfortable conversation to have that way. It would have been a much easier conversation. I almost said confrontation, (laughs) conversation to have if it was something of my own device. Fair enough. Um, but I, we, like I said, we will revisit that when the, the source of those changes comes from somewhere else. Um, okay. So Crystal Lake Slugger writes, writing the bullet, I really enjoyed it and how personal it felt. And I was curious if you go into your scripts expecting to bring a part of yourself into your films, do you always try to bring something personal to your scripts or do you let the story form organically and then it becomes more personal over time? Well, I don't think it's anything you can avoid. You know, if you are an artist who cares about the work that you do, whether you're a painter, a songwriter, a musician, uh, a novelist, or a filmmaker, all of those characters reflect uh, facets of yourself or even facets of your potential self. And I think you write your best characters and direct your best characters and work with actors and and directors of photography and composers and all best if it feels personal to you. If the story hurts, you want it to hurt because it provides you pain that you can share. The same goes for glee or joy or a sense of humor or whatever. The, The more personal you make a movie, even if you didn't write it, you're directing it from somebody else's screenplay, your empathy is what makes you the artist that is capable of doing that work. So uh, I think it's very important to, to be as personal, personally connected to the material as it's possible to be. With writing the bullet that came up real early because it was a story that appealed to me because of loss that I had felt and wanted to express in this story and add to a story that was only 30 pages long. Um, it, it did not find its audience. <laughs> and so uh, maybe my personal connection to the audience was, was not strong. But uh, whether it's the stand or an episode of Once Upon a Time, you know, the most emotional scene I've ever directed in my life, and we've talked about this before, was the scene in Once Upon a Time, where it was an episode called Beauty, and one of the characters ages and dies while her partner um, does not age, and they go through this torment, and the final death scene, there were tears in all of the eyes of the actors and the crew and myself as we were shooting this sequence. And you have to bring that to it or the resultant work is, is going to feel incomplete. I would say in (laughs) writing the bullets defense that there are lots of people who have connected with your take on that story. Uh, over the years, and you know that too. You're just being very humble, but I. Think, well, no, it it's I think, one of I those think, movies. I think the release of that movie had more to do with not enough people finding it uh, than than anything else. Maybe uh, uh, it, it was a definitely botched release, an experimental release that went badly. And yes, I've been gratified by people who found that movie, particularly people who have suffered loss and found solace in that movie. There's nothing more gratifying than having that kind of a reaction with an audience member. But it is still probably my least known work. 
um, and the one that is, is most personal. And we talk about it all the time and probably should stop, but <laughs> no, I don't think we should because more and more people should find it. And I'm glad that our uh, listeners are watching. So there you have yeah, it. Um, all right. Our main kind of, you know, main course question today, which I've been hinting at, uh, Leo asks, I always hear writers hate notes from executives. Why do you think that is? And do executives ever give good notes? Well, I'll answer the first question first. Um, the reason is because a studio executive's job is to make a movie as successful as it can be. Not to be as original as it can be, but when they give notes, it's usually to make a, a script more like something else that has preceded it and has been successful, mm -hmm. rather than it being a good creative idea for where the stories or the characters lead. Mm -hmm. So in their defense, their job is to make a successful movie. Some, I can't think of any examples right now, but I have definitely worked with executives who I respected. Okay. Sure. Uh, um, well, let's see, on, on the fly too, Scott Rudin was our executives. Right. And he was a man of great taste um, at that time in, in making movies and would give some notes. I don't remember specifically notes he gave, but there have been really good, I'm sure you did, Joe, when you were an executive. But I, um, Well, you know, I think, I think the fact that I've turned writer has not surprised a lot of uh, the, the writers that I worked with as an executive, because I think they always felt that I approached my feedback was always kind of writerly in, in the way I would give it. Uh, I think a lot of executives, you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head in saying they try to make the movie like something else, but, but really it's they're operating from a place of fear, right? Because right. executives don't get fired for saying no. Uh, they get fired for saying yes. Right. right. So, to, so to green light a script that uh, makes a an unsuccessful movie, it can be good, it can be bad or whatever. But right. their marching orders are to make a commercial film. Right. And to make it more commercial. And some so of them so can yeah, do so it usually with they're, they're they're sanding things down to make it in their mind something that is going to protect their investment of making this film. Uh, so it's it's. It's, it's again, I think, and I think that's why maybe writers and directors are so frustrated by the notes process uh, because, you know, they're trying to maybe push to do something different or they're trying to, uh, you know, hammer a certain point home and they're finding that uh, what, what they're doing to maybe, you know, push themselves creatively or push the story creatively is being met with a roadblock of fear, essentially. Yeah. Well, even if they don't realize it, the studio executives more often than not, way more often than not, are looking to make something more familiar. Mm -hmm. And a writer and a, a, a filmmaker are looking to make something more original mm -hmm. and probably more screenwriting books are read by studio executives than actual writers. They, <laughs> they believe that there is a formula to writing a screenplay, which is sure. 
utter and total bullshit, if I may say so. <laughs> um, I Preston Sturgis and John Carpenter. Well, maybe John Carpenter did because he went to film school. But all of these great filmmakers we've had over the decades in the beginning of the film world, you know, up through the 70s and 80s, none of them ever read a screenwriting book. None of them ever had a sheet of the 10 requirements that you have uh, to, to make a successful screenplay. That's all become a big business. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it is counterintuitive to creating something new and special. You know, the big breakthrough movies are the ones that aren't like everything that preceded them. And they're the ones that inspire the ones that follow. I agree. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, look, I think, I think there can be things learned in the very early stages of screenwriting from looking at books and such, um, you know, but, but I do think they're like training wheels, you know, you have to, you know, ride, ride on the training wheels a couple of times. Eventually you have to kick those off and you have to find your own voice and you have to. Oh yeah. There's a lot to learn. There's yeah. 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 It can um, be helpful. I mean, but you're I, right. I think, I think there are some executives around town who believe that certain books are the Bible. And if you're not at this particular beat by this particular page count, they'll tell you that your act is first act is too long. And then you'll make those cuts and then they'll say, well, now there's not enough character work, you know, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you end up finding yourself in a, in a vicious cycle where uh, usually their notes, again, operating out of fear. And like Nick said, operating out of, you know, trying to make it a, a more familiar commodity, they end up diluting the thing that they liked about the project to begin with. Uh, exactly. And, and, and then these projects, if they don't, you know, so that's how a lot of movies end up in development hell, or that's how a lot of movies end up being not probably, you know, I'm sure there's a movie you've watched at some point recently where you went, how did this movie get made? It's so bad. Well, yeah. I guarantee you at one point there was probably a really good script. <laughs> and, and it's a reason why there are a lot of writers on one project. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. People are always looking to, to change and reshape and, and rececontextualize. And uh, it's not always for the betterment of the movie. Yeah. Um, there but, are... but, but let's, but let's give executives their, their due. There was a second part to this question. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, well, can well, you there... get a good note from an executive? Yeah. I, you know, over the years, I can't tell you one specifically, but I have definitely gotten good notes. There are intelligent, perceptive and creative executives in the world. And when you work with them, it's a pleasure because normally people, especially young screenwriters, take notes from a studio as the gospel, that they have to do all of that stuff. But if you show that you are cooperative, you can maybe make a change to a third of them and they feel like they're being acknowledged and they appreciate being acknowledged. And and especially if they have some good ideas or even ideas that are no better or no worse than what you've done. And you can manipulate those notes in a way that spark new ideas in you as a writer, then that's thrilling. And it does make the screenplay better. So, uh, you know, there is a use for them. Uh, and, and some of them, like I said, are tasteful and intelligent and educated and, and creative. And those are people I've worked with several and, and they're a pleasure. And I've worked with plenty who've given me notes that are like, what? 
<laughs> Here, you know, the first thing I ever directed was Fuzzbucket, this one-hour Disney TV movie. And in the available screen, now on Disney Plus. <laughs> on Disney Plus, yeah, but don't watch it. Um, <laughs> or lose all respect you might have for me. Uh, but there was a note, this is more standards and practices than studio executive, but there was a note, Fuzzbucket is hiding in a mailbox. And in this scene, he uses a screwdriver to open it and comes out in a, in a fall of mail. The script said, we hear unscrewing, we hear screwing sounds in the mailbox. And standards and practices insti insisted on me writing unscrewing sounds because of their <laughs> salacious minds, because they're looking for the dirt everywhere and it's a stage direction that's not even spoken in the script but that that's the epitome of dopey notes well they you know they just didn't want to get an edit on their their disney uh movie of the week with with porno noises in the background <laughs> oh boy that would have been a very different fuzz bucket but uh but indeed all right, Mick. Well, thank you for another great Ask Mick Anything. We got great questions from our fans this week. And, thank you, uh, Joe. And thanks to the listeners for all the great questions. And uh, if you want to send us questions for future Ask Mick Anything, so you can send them to Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo Tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. All right, great show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.